Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. Hey guys, welcome back to Storytime Podcast. I am your host, Haley Lira, and today I'm going to tell you about Amish born man who turned killer and is linked to what was referred to as Little Boy Blue, a child who was found dead on the side of the road, frozen, and who went unidentified for two years while the state of Nebraska basically adopted him. Before I get started, I just want to thank you guys so much for tuning into Storytime Podcast. You guys, I love doing this as a hobby. Don't forget to check out, like, and follow Storytime Slayer on Facebook. That is where I post all the relevant case information like pictures, videos, source material, etc. And leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. By the way, you can reach me at storytimepods at gmail.com if you have any questions, comments, suggestions. Let's get started. So it was Christmas Eve in 1985 when a man named Chuck went out for a last minute haircut. This location is about 12 miles or so from Chester, Nebraska. It's winter, so it's snowy there and very cold. He's driving and he sees something blue off of the road in the snow. It sounds to have been in a ditch area. Um, Some sources describe it as a ravine, but regardless of the depth, the blue was so out of place that he decided to stop and check it out. He gets a closer look, and it turned out that it was a dead child. According to the book Abandoned Prayers, Chuck had a CB radio he uses to contact the gentleman working at the local gas station. He asked him to get a hold of the sheriff and have him meet Chuck at the location of the body. When authorities get to the scene, it is apparent the child was dead and frozen, partially covered in snow. The blue footy pajamas, however, were clean signaling that the child hadn't been like walking or wandering around before laying down and giving into hypothermia. Um, The child was clearly placed there by somebody. Who? Why? These are all questions that went unanswered for years, like two years. Upon further inspection at the medical examiner's office, they couldn't quite find the cause of death. By the way, the body was so frozen it took a couple days to thaw out. The child in his clothing seemed to be clean. He was about 4 foot 2 inches and 55 pounds, blonde hair with a gap between his teeth, and they estimated him to be about 9. The county sheriff, Gary Young, was said to have looked the boy over first, and he saw markings on the child's neck and face that to him looked as if the kid had been strangled. However, the pathologist said those were just from the frigid temperatures outside. The child actually looked to have had a respiratory infection, but that was literally all they could conclude. Other examiners would look at the autopsy results many times over and come to the same. No one knew how little boy Blue died. Not only could they not determine how he died, they also couldn't figure out who the little boy was. They just kept calling him little boy Blue because of his blue footy pajamas. Sketches and descriptions were made public, but two years would go by before anyone knew who Little Boy Blue truly was. The people of Nebraska were heartbroken about this mysterious death of the unclaimed child, so much so that they pitched in to get him a plot, a headstone, and a proper burial and memorial service. Over 500 people showed up to mourn this unclaimed boy in the town of Chester, Nebraska. They buried him under the name of Matthew, and the headstone read... Little boy abandoned, found near Chester, Nebraska, December 4th, 1985. They left a space in hopes that his identity would come to light and they would be able to put it on the headstone. 
With two years going by and all leads exhausted, he didn't match any reported missing children, and there was no way to link him to any specific place and time. In 1987, there was an article published on a Reader's Digest covering the story of a little boy, Blue, and what the town of Chester did to mourn him. According to an ID special, Murder in Amish Country, it says a friend of a man known as One Hand Eli called police after he read the Reader's Digest article because he thought, man, this sure does look like One Hand Eli's grandson, Danny, born to Eli and Ida Stutzman. They hadn't seen the little boy in several years when his father left the Amish community for good after his mother passed away in a mysterious fire. Although the news of Little Boy Blue had been blasted everywhere in the media, it was completely missed by the community Little Danny was from because, well, they are Amish and they aren't watching the news or involved in any worldly things. By the way, one hand Eli named his son Eli. Okay, so to avoid any confusion, I'm going to refer to Danny's grandpa as one hand Eli and Danny's dad just as Eli. I went down a rabbit hole watching murder in Amish country and I'm not kidding you. Everyone is fucking named Eli in the Amish community. So then I googled common, uh, common Amish names and it averaged on the list of most popular Amish boy names. Like fucking Eli was on every one of them. <laughs> So now authorities need to find this boy's parents. It turns out, like I said, his mom had died in a mysterious fire in 1977, which I will talk about. But his father, Eli Stutzman, was all the way down in Texas just hanging out doing his thing. This is one thing in a series of events that we're going to cover. So buckle up. This is going to get kind of fucking weird. Let's start with Eli Stutzman. Eli Stutzman was the father of little boy Blue, whose real name was Danny Stutzman. So the Stutzman family was part of the largest Amish community. And here's what I learned about the Amish community. They don't do cars, TV, electricity, nothing motor powered or electric powered, basically. On top of being Amish, they are a part of one of the most conservative and strict orders within Amish communities known as the Schwarzenegger Order, which was established in 1913. Nothing modern in this group of people. Like not even buttons. They only fasten their clothes with pins. No pimping out your buggy. Nothing flashing. No unnecessary ornate detailing. No worldly undergarments. So like no underwear. No running water. Nothing part of this modern world. Nothing. They're like extreme Amish people. Some Amish orders were to allow for sort of like windshield on their buggy to protect them from the elements. Dude, but not even that modification would be allowed in the Swartz and Truger order. They're living in like the 1800s. Crazy. So a major thing about being Amish too is like to be Amish and fraternize with the Amish, you got to actually be Amish. Like you can't be worldly Amish person. Amish people are supposed to be honest and pure from what I've gathered. And that doesn't leave a lot of room to get away with bad behavior nor to want to. They seem like in this moment of time in this community, they had a certain degree of transparency among themselves. I know that no one knows what goes on behind closed doors, but I think that it's similar to like a strictly religious home and that there's a serious personal oath to being accountable and being a pure, honest, godly, disciplined person. And this was a shared ideology. So I don't think many of the Amish people put on a facade like they're truly living the life day in, day out. Eli was not. So Eli is born September 1950. 
He is one of 14 children. He's named after his father, who was often, like I said, called One Hand Eli. And that is because he'd lost one hand in a farming accident like years earlier. Eli was very rebellious and often had to get his ass whooped by his daddy. That is because he was an avid liar. He would lie about everything. Like he couldn't help it. Dude, my brother-in-law does that. I don't know why people are like that, but apparently he was a compulsive liar. So he could also be charming though, fun, likable, but he never quite fit in with his Amish roots. Moving forward, when Amish kids turn like 16, they can go to what's called a sing, or maybe they're called singings. I don't know. But they're for the kids to mingle and find someone that they'd like to court, someone they want to date. This is where Eli first laid eyes on Ida Gingrich. Ida was born July 1951, so just like under a year apart in age. She, too, instantly had googly eyes for Eli, and they began dating. This must have been in like the mid-1960s. Ida was pretty devoted to Eli and the idea of being his wife. But there are several times throughout their courting that Eli would actually date other women for brief periods of time. I don't know if Ida knew that, um, but others in the community knew that about Eli. In 1971, Eli still lived at home. And I'm willing to bet that the Amish probably do that until they marry or something of that sort. He began teaching at the Amish school, which is a one-roomed schoolhouse. And he made about $140 a month. According to the ID special, this is equivalent to like $950 a month in today's currency. He continued a defiant anti-authority attitude, which caused him to actually move out of his father's home and live with a family that I think they were Amish, but they were part of the old Amish order or a different Amish order that afforded them a few modern luxuries. Not many modern luxuries, though. (laughs) Okay, but the whole reason that he moved out of his dad's house is because one-handed Eli was really controlling, domineering, strict. And he would make Eli give him most of his paycheck. And literally after he moved out, Eli's dad was so controlling that one hand Eli went down to the school and tried to make them give him his son's paycheck. And they, of course, were like, dude, no. Sometime later in February of 1972, Eli collapsed upstairs in the farmhouse of the family he was staying with. And Amish people are allowed modern medicine, but most prefer natural doctors. Eli had some sort of nerve attack. Now, I could never tell if they meant strictly physical nerve or like mental nervous attack. But regardless, it made him physically like stiffen up. They called a doctor and the doctor first tried to get him seen by a reflexologist. And those are people who do massage pressure points on like your feet and other parts of your body. But his feet were too stiff for the reflexologist to help. So they went to a chiropractor. Pretty common for Amish people to see chiropractors instead of real doctors. Um, The chiropractor did very little to help, but I guess it offered a little bit of relief. In the book, Abandoned Prayers, it is mentioned that even Eli's penis was erect from this like nerve attack. It was embarrassing, I guess. But yeah, it lasted for a long time. Some men wish for that. So because of this nerve attack, Eli couldn't work at the school anymore. So he did his best just to help on the farm for the people that he lived with. 
May 1972, Eli's dad actually decided he needed to have Eli committed to a mental institution because he believed he was suffering from mental illness. They only kept him for three days, which I presume is like a suicide watch. And after the third day hospitalized, Eli decided he was going to leave the Swartzen Trooper Church for good. And he's for sure going to go to the Old Order Church. That's the church of the Amish family that he'd been living with at the time. They let people pimp out their buggies and shit. So he joins the Old Order Church instead, but he doesn't really commit to it. In fact, he only attends it a couple times. And then he's gone hanging out with like worldly people like you and us, and they even see him driving cars. The old order ended up excommunicating him, which was obviously fine with Eli, and he went and stayed with a different couple, who I think were like as modern Amish as you can get. They even wore clothes from department stores and drove cars sometimes. So Eli transitioned really easily to living there. Eli and Ida obviously went kind of cold because Eli left the Amish community, but Ida was heartbroken. She wanted Eli to come back to the Swartzen Trooper order and marry her, and she would write to him. But in the meantime, he was like, yeah, I'm not going to do that. And so he's like seeing other women. He even gets another woman pregnant and paid for her to have an abortion. Like I said, Ida's writing to him. She's like, come on back. I'm ready for you. And then late 1974, Eli actually, I don't know how he got involved in this, but he helped the police bust a pot farm. And basically, he just went and bought pot from them undercover. And then the police busted the farm, right? So after the bust, Eli was like, well, they obviously know it was my fault because you guys busted them so soon after I bought the pot. And he claimed that he was getting death threats from them because they knew it was him and that he'd worked with the police. They were mailing him these threats and he even had the letters as proof. So one day, the man of the house that Eli's staying at, he comes out to his barn and he finds Eli, which by the way, the barn was a fucking disaster. Eli had been beaten up and was just covered in cuts and blood, bleeding out profusely from his leg. And he said, what took you so long? Eli said that after he'd gotten his ass kicked in this dude's barn. Eli said two men jumped him, beat him up, cut him all over, and stabbed him in the leg. He'd been stabbed in or near an artery in his leg, so he bled so much he almost died. The police had to be called. But that wasn't all what it seemed. Like, for one, the cuts on Eli were extremely clean. Um, Not like that of a struggle, which I'll take it, but that's kind of like weak evidence that something suspicious is happening. But what couldn't be ignored were the letters. Okay, so all the letters were in Eli's handwriting. And the ones that were typed on a typewriter, they matched Eli's typewriter exactly. Then they found a razor blade hidden in the barn and eventually Eli confessed that he orchestrated this entire thing and he attacked himself. So like he's a crazy liar. When he was released from the hospital, he started staying gone from the farm that he lived on for like days at a time. And once while he was gone, the woman of the home, she actually went through his room and she said that she found gay porn and she ended up burning all of it. And I can't say exactly which farm Eli lived on when this happened, but one of the women searched his room and they actually found satanic writings and doodles in his room. And I want to say it's the same woman that found the gay porn, but I can't remember. So he obviously was like just doing his own thing. Like he was not, I think he was done being Amish. He was a closeted gay man. 
and this wasn't the life for him. So 75 rolls around and the Amish farmers that Eli was staying at, they basically have to fire him. I think kick him out. And he decided then, okay, I'm going to sell my car and I'm going to go back to the Swartzen Truger Amish community. Now, remember, this is a really strict one that he came from, but they let him back in. He had to do a confession with um, just some of the elders. And, oh, it drives me crazy. I want to know what he said, but only him and the elders will ever know. And they let him back into the group. And then he professes his love and gets engaged to Ida. Woo! Ida's like, yes. She definitely thinks like God brought him back to her. And it's meant to be. So in Ohio at the time, you need to get a blood test if you're going to get married. And the Amish don't really know the technicalities of why. Apparently, they just know like it has to be done. And like most things in their life, they just said if it's God's will, the test will come back positive. Um, In reality, the tests were for venereal diseases, STDs and STIs. And Eli and Ida's failed two times, which is because Eli had an STD. He had syphilis. Now, the third time they went for a blood test, it passed. And it's been insinuated that Eli's father maybe asked a doctor on the download to pass Eli's blood test. I find it more likely that Eli figured out his symptoms were an STD and went to see a modern doctor. (laughs) Eli used his skills of lying though and he said that he had to drink an herbal tea to cleanse his blood and that is why he passed and he hadn't passed before. The couple wed on Christmas in 1975 which is so tacky to me to get married on Christmas. She was pregnant so fast and boy that was it for Eli. He would stay gone all the time. She never had any idea where he was, how long he'd be gone, or how to get a hold of him. And like, you know, no big deal. They're just fucking Amish, and they don't have a car or a phone. So when asked about Eli's absence, people could tell Ida was just used to it. That is so sad. I don't know if you've picked it up yet, but Eli is gay. The first thing Eli did to indicate he was a homosexual to any of his peers was he offered his friend money if he'd give him a blowjob. Yeah, his friend was giving him a ride home or somewhere. And he first tried to give him 40 bucks and his friend said no. So then he tried to give him 60 bucks and his friend kicked him out of the car. September 7th, 1976, little Danny was born. And the following spring in 77, Eli and Ida bought a larger farm from an Amish neighbor. She became pregnant again very quickly. So I guess he's bisexual. I don't know. So here's what the fuck's going on. By all accounts, Eli looks Amish, acts Amish, goes to Amish church, has an Amish wife, Amish house, Amish kid, Amish life. But when he's gone for long periods of time and Ida doesn't know where he is or what he's doing, it ain't Amish shit, boo. Okay? Okay. So Eli and Ida had gotten this farm and they wanted to go get a loan to pay the person they got it from in full. So they go to the bank and it's a $55,000 loan. They told them that the loan was to pay the house off. But actually with this type of loan, he was allowed to do whatever he wanted with the money. And no one actually knows what he did with it because uh, we know he didn't pay off the barn in full. He continued making his monthly payments to the person who he bought the farm from. So... Coincidentally, the day after the couple gets this loan, there's a really big thunder and lightning storm. Ida's younger cousin, she he'd been staying at their house with them and living there just to help get some work done that summer. Well, apparently, 
During or after the storm, Eli called Ida's cousin out to look at the barn. Eli insisted it had been struck by lightning and was pouring water over the area. Now, the cousin hadn't seen the lightning strike or any sign that lightning had struck the barn, but apparently Eli did, and he knew exactly where it was struck at. So the cousin was like, okay, whatever, I'll just fetch you more water. So fast forward to that night at midnight. Middle of the night, Ida's cousin wakes up to a big-ass fire in the barn. He hollers um, for Ida and Eli and then goes to tell them, but he can't find them anywhere. He's like, shit, they're probably at the barn. So he runs towards the barn and there is Eli moving all his farm equipment out of the barn. Ida is, by the way, unconscious and extremely close to the scolding flames in the barn. Eli told the boy to run to the neighbors and get help. When the neighbor ran over, Eli yelled for that man to help him carry his wife away from the fire. And Eli told him, oh, I think she had a heart attack. Shortly after when emergency services arrived, Eli's story went like this. Ida woke him up about the fire. They quickly dressed. He told her to go to the neighbors, but she actually wanted to see if she could get her milk jugs out of the barn quickly. And as he was dressing, he was like, okay, she must have gone to the barn really quick to get her milk jugs. I'd said it was fine just to be careful. And I think she had a heart attack from the stress. He then tells everybody that she had a weak heart from a high fever she got as a teenager. But this was actually not true. This was a lie. Um, Ida's doctor knew it was a lie and her family knew it was a lie, but like they didn't call him out on it, which I don't understand. So her death was attributed to the fire and a weak heart. Case closed. This was suspicious to Ida's family, but no one really questioned it. Everybody says time and time again, if Ida hadn't been Amish, her death would have been looked at closer. But it seemed like everyone just looked at Eli and took his word for whatever. So after Ida's death, her twin brothers, who were only 15, they actually stayed the night. They'd been helping rebuild Eli's barn with all the other men in the community. Oh, God, 200 men in the community showed up with materials and rebuilt Eli's barn that caught on fire in one day. Okay. Anyway. So the teenage boys stay the night with Eli, and it's not unusual for Amish people to share beds. And both 15-year-old boys said that Eli rubbed his erect penis against them in the middle of the night, and both had to ignore him. Ugh. One year after Ida died, Eli had another mental breakdown. He had to be hospitalized, and he was there for one week. After this, he quit going to Amish church and started going to the Mennonite church and living modern. He turned on his electricity, had modern luxuries, got a car or truck, and quit concealing his homosexuality. So the Eli Stritzman timeline is not clear cut, but I'm going to do my best. Um, I think for a good while, him and Danny stayed on the farm after the death of Ida he was known to have a lot of men in and out of the farmhouse. Some young men rented rooms from him at the farm. And people got the picture. Like, they're like, okay, Eli is gay. Eventually, Eli decided to sell all his cows. And it was time for him and Danny to move on. They're going to leave the farm. They're going to leave the Amish community for good. Some reports say he moved away in 1982. But I don't know the exact year and date that he did what. Apparently, he first moved to Colorado to work on a ranch, and it's rumored that he would have different people watch Danny for periods of time, but between 1982 and 85, I can't really say. Now, Eli and Danny, they moved to Austin, Texas in 1985 because he'd met a man. Eli would meet men through newspaper and magazine ads where other gay men looked for potential partners. 
So that was his reason for landing in Texas, but the relationship didn't last long at all. Eli, though, thrived in Texas, so he didn't move. He just got his own place with rooms that he rented out. He trained horses, and he actually had a construction company on the side, which he hired mostly gay young men. One employee in particular, though, wasn't gay. He was recently divorced and really obsessively missed his wife. His name was Glenn. He'd recently moved to Austin from Reno and rented a room from Eli. The men grew to be friends until January 1985. Sometime beginning January was the last time anyone heard from Eli's new friend, Glenn. He was trying to reach his ex-wife, and that was his last point of contact. Four months later, May 1985, Glenn was found on the side of the road in a ditch with a gunshot wound to the head. Police link Eli to him, and they go to Eli's place and question him about Glenn. Eli said Glenn wanted to go home to see his family, so he sent him on a bus. Eli claimed he drove him to the bus stop himself and hadn't seen Glenn since. When officer told Eli Glenn was found dead on the side of the road, he acted shocked. Eli pushed his lie further and said he'd spoken on the phone to Glenn a couple times and he thought for sure Glenn was in another state. While speaking to Eli, the investigators noticed a bunch of horse statues and were like, Whoa, do you like horses? And Eli explained (laughs) that he did like them. He trained them at a local farm. And this farm that he named was less than a mile from where police found Glenn's body dumped in that ditch. When police went back for a second interview, Eli was gone. He disappeared. So this is when Eli calls his cousin Abe. Abe, oh my God, another super common Amish name. All Bible names are, but like this is in the top 10 for sure. Anyway, he tells Abe that he's got some horse training job and he can't really take Danny with him. Abe's wife was a stay-at-home mom, so Abe was like, yeah, we'll take care of him for a while. No problem. Eli brought the boy to Abe's house, left him with $100 and told Abe, get him some clothes, get him a haircut, make him a modern man. I think it is around this timeline because we know that Eli left Danny for about six months and he picked him up soon before he was left on the side of the road. So from there, no one really truly knows exactly what Eli did, but he said he was going to take some vacation time in Florida for a month before starting a new horse training job. Eventually, Eli makes his way to Durango, Colorado. I don't know when he got there, but I do know he left there a murder suspect. On November 10th, 1985, a passenger on the Durango and Silverton train caught sight of the decaying body of David Tyler. David Tyler was a local man that had been placed in a truck bed parked outside of his auto shop on the 1400 block of Main Avenue. He actually died of blunt force trauma to the head. He was only 36. A month later, according to the Durango Herald, Durango Police Department responded to a call about a robbery and shooting at the Junction Creek Liquor Store. Officers arrive at the scene, and in the basement, they discover the body of Dennis Sleater, a 20-year-old Fort Gibson college student who worked part-time as a clerk at the liquor store. This took place December 5, 1985. An acquaintance had come to the liquor store hollering for Dennis and ultimately found him dead in the basement with two gunshot wounds to the back of the head. Both victims knew one another and Eli Stutzman. They were all three drug users and gay men that were seen together partying just days before Tyler died. These murder cases were never solved, but the most significant lead they had was Eli Stutzman, and he was nowhere to be found. An eyewitness even put him at the liquor store the night Dennis Sleater died. 
So what I think happened is after he killed both those men in Durango, he's like, oh, God, I got to get out of here. So he makes his way to his cousin Abe's house who lived in Wyoming, and he's going to pick up his little boy Danny, and they're going to go to Ohio. So Eli claims after he picked up Danny, Danny had been sick and was on a medication. They were driving, and he looked back, and Danny kept curling up and going to sleep. So they stopped so he could change into his pajamas. And when he looked back later, he saw Danny was dead. Yeah, he had just died in his sleep, apparently. Rather than tell anyone or go to the police or hospital, he decided to put Danny on the side of the road. I think he just wanted to continue his lifestyle. Plus, he was on the run from the police, probably, for all the people he'd fucking killed. Um, so, yeah, he left Danny on the side of the road. He claimed he was giving him back to God. I think he was just running. And he started going by the name David Summers in Texas. Now, his lifestyle was to party with other gay men, lots of drugs, lots of unprotected sex. He ends up catching the AIDS virus at some point in his life. So during the two years that Danny was unidentified, nobody knew that Danny was missing because Eli was writing some letters pretending to be Danny to some of his family. Like he would act like he was Danny writing to them. And then other family members, probably ones that pushed harder, he wrote to them that Danny had actually died in a car wreck and they're Amish, so they won't know the damn difference. They're not going to be able to check. Fast forward, it's 1987 and the police in Texas are in communication with Colorado and Nebraska police finally identify Danny Stutzman. So all these police officers are like making connections to Eli Stutzman. It's 1987 and Nebraska police decide to go to Eli's Amish country and speak with the Stutzman family. The Stutzman family produced a letter that was from Eli stating Danny had died in a car wreck. But the chilling thing is the letter was dated seven months before Danny had actually died and been left on the side of the road. The police were also informed of Ida's suspicious death in the barn fire. So if he could kill his wife, he could definitely kill his son. Investigators had a lot to go on. Now, though, they got to find the motherfucker. So eventually they do find him by his alias, David Summer, who is living in Texas. And they got this information from a called in phone tip. When surrounded by police, Eli immediately came out with his hands up and just surrendered. First things first, he's extradited to Nebraska for the death of Danny. However, they had insufficient evidence and they could only charge Eli with two misdemeanors, abandoning a human corpse and concealing a death. So he gets 12 months for abandoning a human corpse and six months for concealing a death. All in all, he only served 18 months. Other than not fitting into Eli's lifestyle, nobody really knows his motive for killing Danny. Police speculate that maybe Danny was a potential witness to the murder of Glenn, or he just figured out too much about his dad. Eli maintained Danny didn't feel good and went to sleep, and when he died in his sleep, he had to put him on the side of the road. Wow. After that trial for Danny, he immediately gets extradited to Texas, where he is sentenced to 40 years for the murder of Glenn. But he gets out in like 13 or 16 years on parole in Azle, Texas. I have the worst memories of Azle, Texas. Like I said, he's got the AIDS virus. He's doing heavy drugs. And after not hearing or seeing him for a while, his neighbors actually called police to request a welfare check. And Eli was found deceased. He'd actually killed himself by slicing an artery in his arm. 
So he was never connected. He was connected, but he was never charged for the Colorado murders. And he was never charged for Ida's murder. And he was never actually charged for Danny's murder. The only murder he was actually charged for was Glenn. Crazy. There was a lot of signs of mental illness with Eli Stutzman. Um, he just wasn't right. But part of the Amish community is they don't pry. They don't get in each other's business. Anyway, guys, thank you so much for tuning in to Little Boy Blue. And I hope you have a happy holiday. Talk to you next week. Bye.